When I was uh, 15, <clears throat> uh, I saw a poster outside a church. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm not the biggest fan of church posters outside churches. I don't know if you've seen some good ones in your time. I'm sure you have, like me. But this one really sort of caught my attention when I was 15. I was sort of in my, my zealous age, my zealous phase. And uh, the poster was this one. Can I get it up on the screen? Anyone seen this before, this image? Wow. Yeah, um, this was a poster. It was a, actually an advertising campaign the Church of England did a while ago. And uh, I don't know when it was. Well, when I was 15, I saw the poster. I don't know how long it had been around. But they sort of took this image of... Um, that quite famous image you see on T-shirts of Che Guevara, this uh, revolutionary, Cuban revolutionary, and they sort of morphed it into Jesus' image, and then these words, meek, mild, as if, and I guess they're sort of challenging that stereotype of Jesus and Christianity as this kind of watered-down, wishy-washy, kind of love-everybody kind of thing. And uh, when I was 15, this really stood out. Something about this image of Jesus, I hadn't sort of seen an image of Jesus like this before. Um, the sort of Jesus with those sort of fierce-looking eyes looking into distance, the, the Jesus, the sort of prophet, the revolutionary. This is the different sort of Jesus than I've seen before. We're in this series called Jesus and the One, and we're looking at what it was when Jesus spoke to individuals, when he met with individuals. And today, we're looking at how Jesus spoke to this Pharisee. Now, I just, I just want to go over what happened in this story, in this passage in Luke 11. Because sometimes sort of when we read it, we just sort of miss exactly what is going on, the, the, the scandalous nature of what's going on in this passage. So if you've got your Bibles, um, turn to Luke 11, and we'll just have a little look at that um, passage there. Je- Jesus is invited by this Pharisee to, Jesus, uh, to um, this party, to the, his house. Um, so we know that this man is quite an important man, because he has a house, and he has a house that he could invite other people to. Now, he's seen Jesus go to other people's houses before. He's into that. So he wants some of that. So he invites Jesus to, this, to his house. And we read in, uh, in chapter um, 11 that Jesus comes in, uh, and he went in. He reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Jesus goes into this meal. He does not wash his hands. Now, you're like, that's not a big deal. It's a little bit unhygienic. We've got to understand that in this culture, to not wash your hands is deeply, deeply scandalous, uh, particularly at a Pharisee's home who had kind of like made this a ritual thing. You do this. When you go to a meal, you wash your hands. Jesus goes in. He doesn't wash his hands. And for those sort of standing around watching, they're looking at this unfold, right? This Pharisee invites Jesus to his house. Jesus goes, sits down, doesn't wash his hands. Everyone's watching this thinking... Oh my goodness, this is going to go down, right? It's like Jesus' sort of mic drop moment, right? And then he sort of hears what they're thinking and he launches into this tirade against them. Six woes he gives, or three woes to the Pharisee and the Pharisees, the, the Pharisees that they, this man represents. Woe to you, woe to you. This word woe, this word woe is this word like deep sort of groaning or alas, it is not good with you and actually holds something of kind of judgment in it, future judgment. It will not be well with you. Now just remember, who's invited who to whose house? Right? The Pharisee invited Jesus to his house and this is the way Jesus is behaving towards him. This is deeply, deeply scandalous. Can you imagine if this happened at one of your dinner parties? Can you imagine if this happened when you invite someone over? Some of the youngsters are looking at me like, a dinner party? What on earth is that? Can you imagine what happened if you invited someone over like this and they behave like this, what you would do? You'd do nothing because you're British, right? But you would inside, you'd feel deeply, deeply angry. And then you'd wait till that person left and then you'd text someone else about how angry you were feeling, right? This is a different culture. Jesus launches into this woes. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, he says. And it's not like it's kind of simple, nice language. This is deeply, deeply convicting 
language. And then I love this moment where the teacher of the law comes along and the teacher of the law is like, excuse me, Jesus, you know, if you sort of say these things about them, you're kind of saying them about us as well. And Jesus is like, yeah, let me tell you about you, teachers of the law. And he continues on, woe to you, teachers of the law, woe to you. And then there's this whole thing about blood and prophets' blood upon you. Can you imagine how scandalous this is? This Jesus, we get a different look at Jesus this morning. We get a different look at Jesus, meek and mild as if. This is Jesus, the revolutionary. This is Jesus, the prophet. This is Jesus saying it how it is. This is Jesus calling out the you know what. This is Jesus seeing beyond it, getting to the heart of the matter. And we're going to look at why he does this. Now, I'm into a program. It's not often church that I get into a program. But I am into a program. And the program is on uh, Prime, Amazon Prime. And uh, it's called All or Nothing. And it's a series that follows sort of sports teams. Anybody seen this series, All or Nothing? Great. And uh, he... um, (laughs) And uh, what what this is sort of a documentary thing, and it it follows sports teams. And it's done a few in America, a couple couple of uh, American football teams, I believe. But the one that I've really got into is it's followed the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby team, the All Blacks. And um, I don't know if you know anything about the All Blacks, but the All Blacks are the most successful sporting team in the world. And it's an astonishing thing, their kind of win ratio to loss ratio. It's astonishing, considering the size of their country, um, who they are, the numbers of people playing rugby, considering what they've achieved in world rugby. And this is, you know, it's rugby. It's not kind of like a nice, gentle sport. This is sort of the height of physicality, the height of sports. And New Zealand have been incredibly successful for a long time. They're legends. And so this this film crew followed them around Uh, last year, and they tried to find out, okay, what makes an all-black, what sort of makes an all-black tick, what makes them so successful? And the person really they were kind of focusing on, I guess, was the coach, Steve Hansen. Can I go a couple of slides on? There he is, big Steve. And uh, uh, it follows him around, and it sees his coaching kind of technique. And he has incredible man management. There's lots I could say about that, the way he develops character, he sees the good in people, all that kind of stuff. But there's this one moment that really, really struck me, really stuck with me. It's in sort of the fourth episode, I think. Now, the All Blacks have just come off the back of an incredible win against Australia, their biggest rivals, probably. They've beaten Australia really, really well. People didn't expect them to beat them, but they did because they're the All Blacks. They come off the back of that. And, and after this win, they're sat down in the kind of in the, um, uh, briefing room. And they've got a post-match um, brief. A couple of days later, this is probably. They've got a, a post-match briefing with, with Steve Hansen. So Steve Hansen's stand here. The team are all there. And they're all lined up listening. And uh, in a couple of days' time, so the next week, they're going to play Argentina. Now, if Australia are sort of the biggest rivals because they're one of the better teams. Argentina are probably less of a rival and they're not quite as good. Everyone would expect New Zealand to beat Argentina. Everyone would expect that to happen every time. Um, so they beat Australia and then they got Argentina coming up. Steve Hansen comes in. He stands in front of all these players and he's already said well done to them. They've had all that. And he looks at these players and he says to them, Right, how many of you have done your homework for Argentina? How many of you have gone home and you've looked up how to beat Argentina? You've studied your opposite number and you can tell me something about them? I'd just like you now to stand up if that's you. How many of you have done your homework, he says. These are elite sportsmen. How many of you have done your homework? And three of them stand up. Three of them stand up. None of the others have done their homework. And he launches into them. Do you want me to tell you who's in that room? Yeah, of course you do. I'll tell you who's in that room. (laughs) 
Dane Coles is in that room, everybody. Wyatt Crockett is in that room. Charlie Faramina, Owen Franks, Joe Moody, Brody Retallick, Sam Whitelock, Sam Kane, Jerome Kano, Kieran Reed, Ardy Surveyor. That's just the forwards. Let me go into the backs. The backs, TJ Perinara, Aaron Smith, Bowden Barrett, Aaron Cruden, Ryan Crotty, Sonny Bill Williams, Israel Dagg, Rico Ioni, Julian Sevilla, and Ben Smith. All are told you have not done your homework, boys. You have not done your homework. And you could see the look on their faces But this is what he says to them, Steve Hansen says to them. He says, you are all blacks. He says, you are the best in the world. You are the best in your position. That's why you've been selected. That's what it means to wear the black shirt. If you really want to be the best, if you want to live up to that mantle, if you want to be the team that I think you can be, then you need to have done your homework. Woe to you. He doesn't say this, these are my words. Woe to you all blacks. Woe to you, because next week you will get beaten if you do not do your homework. If you have ever been a coach and you're trying to coach or teach somebody who refuses to see their potential, then you'll understand a little bit of what Jesus is doing in this passage. If you've ever been or seen a parent who's trying to parent a child who just refuses to be happy, you will know a little bit about what it is that Jesus is doing in this passage. If you have been a friend to somebody who is struggling with an addiction or with a fear or with a mental illness, you will know what it is that Jesus is doing in this passage. He is speaking with incredible love, incredible kindness towards these people, but he is calling it out. Am I preaching? Do you understand what I'm saying? This is a Jesus who knows what goodness looks like who knows what true freedom, what true life and wholeness and justice looks like. And he will not stop until it is a reality. A reality in the world and a reality in my life and in your life. He won't stop. The Jesus who wants more for us than we so often see for ourselves. The Jesus who will fight for that. The Jesus who won't stop until we have fullness of life. The Jesus who wants more for you than possibly you even want for yourself. This is the Jesus we see in this passage. And I've used a rugby analogy there, and I just want to be really, really clear on that. You know, sometimes when we're talking about this thing, which I guess is talking about tough love or calling it out, sometimes what can happen is that we sort of think that that's a very masculine thing. And I know I've used a sporting analogy, a rugby analogy. And I know sort of you might be standing up, you're a male, sort of talking about, you know, this sort of uh, macho kind of way of being in life. I don't think this is what this is about at all. This is about love, fierce, defensive love. The sort of love, and here's the thing, a mother has for her child do you know that kind of Jesus who will go the whole way perhaps you can say it like this the Jesus we see in the gospels he has one intention or one motivation and that motivation is always the same that motivation is love every time love and we've seen that play out haven't we in these stories the last few weeks we've seen it play out in the way he talked to Zacchaeus the way he talked to the woman at the well, the way he talked to the leper or blind Bartimaeus. We've seen what that love looks like in practice. Well, here we're seeing it again. It's just that in different situations, when he confronts different things, and when he confronts different things in us, 
that love is expressed in different ways. Does that make sense? It's like the, the primary motivation is love all the time in Jesus. But when it meets certain things, it looks different. And what we see here in this passage in Luke 11 is a different sort of expression of that love. But it is love just the same, which is why I wanted us to read that second passage, that second chapter in Luke 13. Because we see there a Jesus who again is talking to the same people, to the Jews, to the Israelites, to the Pharisees. And he stands overlooking the capital city, the city, the kind of cultural, religious capital, the centre of everything that this Pharisee believes. And Jesus stands over it and he looks at it and he weeps. He weeps and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to care for you, how I longed to protect you. If only you would let me, if only you would have let me love you like I'm trying to love you. If only you would have, then none of this, none of what's about to happen would have to happen. This is what we see in Jesus, this deep love. And so here's the question for us this morning. What is it that the Pharisee has done? What is it the Pharisees have done or are doing that provokes this sort of expression of love? Are you with me? So that's the question. What has he done that's provoked this sort of expression of love? Why does Jesus have to go to the woes? Why does he have to batter them with the woes? Now, I think there's two things here, and I want to talk about um, two things. There's the group and there's the individual, and we're going to look at this over the next two weeks because I think this is a really significant passage, and I think there's a lot here, and I couldn't do it in one sermon. It would have been too long. So I think there's the group challenge, and then I think there's the individual challenge. There's a group challenge. He's talking to this Pharisee as the member of a group, um, G, uh, the followers of God, God's people in the world, the Israelites. He's talking to them as leaders of that community, um, He's talking to them as leaders of that community. By the way, I said a word a second ago. I said the word batter, and that was a mistake. I shouldn't have used that word. That's not what I mean. You with me on that? I don't mean that. When I talk about love responding, I'm talking about a fierce love which pushes through, which goes deeper. There's no battering. There's no pain. There's no hurting. This isn't against us. This is deeply, deeply for us. Does that make sense? So there's two things. There's the group, and then there's the individual. Next week, we're going to look at the individual challenge. I think there's a deep, deep individual challenge, but I think now there's a group challenge for us. What does this mean for us as a church? What does this mean for us as a people? Now, you can't separate those two because as we keep saying, you are the church. I'm the church, you are the church, we're the church together. Um, so they, you can't quite separate them, but I think maybe just for the next few weeks, we're going to look at what does this mean for us as a church, as a group, and the next week, what does this look like for individuals? Are you still with me? So let's look at the group challenge, shall we? Now, the Pharisees, who are these Pharisees? Well, like I said, the Pharisees, the thing we've got to see about them is they are leaders of their community. They're important, significant people. They're the people who have done the training. They're the people who have gone to seminary, who have studied God's word. They know all about God's word. And the Pharisees actually took themselves upon themselves a particular role in society. They saw their job as encouraging the whole people of God, all of the people who followed God. They saw their role as leading them in holiness. Now that kind of meant... They said, you, you know you've got the temple and you know you've got church. You know that's where you go and worship. Well, what if we could bring all of that into everyday reality? What if the holiness that we see kind of in the temple we could bring into our homes as well and into our everyday lives? That was kind of the Pharisees' role. That's what they took upon themselves. And they really believed that if we could all do this, if we could all be as holy as we were in the temple every day, then something would change. There'd be revival, there'd be breakout. God would come back, he'd take away the Romans, he'd restore the land, he'd bring freedom. But the way they sought to do this was through holiness. 
And things like washing your hands before the meal, which is why Jesus goes there, were so, so important to them. So they took God's word, they took the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as we have it, the Jewish scriptures. They took them and they tried to apply them to every area of life, every sort of minutiae detail. You know in the Torah, it says don't work on the Sabbath. Well, let us tell you what work looks like. How many sticks am I allowed to carry on the Sabbath? When does Sabbath actually start? Am I allowed to prepare food in advance or do I have to not do it? And what is preparing food? And they would have kind of law after law after law after law of how to apply those things to our lives. That's what Jesus is going after. Now, um, I want to look at this verse um, in uh, Luke 11. If you jump with me to verse 43. Uh, 42, sorry. This is where I want to go. This is what I want to look at this morning, this group challenge to us. Verse 42. Jesus says this, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. Now that idea of tithing, is really, really important. And uh, it comes from the Jewish law. It comes directly out of the Jewish law. And I want us, uh, just for a second, I know we're flicking around a little bit in the scriptures this morning, but that's good. We're going to jump back to Deuteronomy. So I think it's going to be on the screen. But if you've got your um, uh, Bibles open, we're going to jump back to Deuteronomy chapter 14. And I just want to read what it says there, because this, this to me was really, really interesting. Uh, So Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 22. This is what God says. Okay, so this is the command he gives the Jewish people. This is where the Pharisees are getting their, their instructions from about tithing. Be sure, God says, to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is too far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your town, so they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. Now, the things I want us to notice about this passage is it's a command, it's something to do, but I want us to see that the basis of the command is in the extravagant love of God. Do you, do you kind of see that? This, in one sense, we could look at this and say this seems like an obligation, a heavy obligation, but actually what God, I think, is wanting us to see, can I keep those verses back up? Is that heard? All right, heard. Um, what I want us to see is how, how rooted this is in the love of God. It's this great story that God has rescued his people from bondage 
and has brought them into a new reality. He's rescued them from slavery and he's brought them into freedom. He's a God who loves. He's a God who, who is kind. And that word there, when we see the word Lord in bold like that, that's the, the name of God, the name of God that belonged to the Jewish people. And for them, that name, Yahweh, that name was always about freedom. That name was always about rescue. Who is Yahweh? Yahweh is merciful, kind, generous. And so when God says, I want you to take a tithe, and the reason I want you to take a tithe is so that you may learn to revere, he says, the Lord your God always, is basically, when you do this tithe, what do I want you to remember? I want you to remember that everything you have is gift. Everything you have is gift and is a a gift to you. And I want you to remember that I am kind and that nothing you have, you have because you own or because you sort of received it or because you worked hard for it. I want you to remember everything you have is a gift from me who is generous and kind. I want you to remember Yahweh. I want you to remember me. And then there's, I love this thing about God is saying, you know, take your tithe, all of your food. You can imagine if you had a big field and you'd harvest all of your crops, you'd literally take kind of 10%. And he's saying, take it to the temple and eat it at the temple. But if you can't get to the temple because you've got too much stuff, what I want you to do is I want you to sell all of your stuff, your 10%, exchange it for money, and then go to the temple. And when you get to the temple, I want you to buy. And what does God say that you can buy? Just go back one slide. I want you to buy whatever you like. I love that. God is kind. What do, you want, what do I want you to buy? I want you to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Here's what God is saying there. This is the reading of it. This is the original Hebrew. Have a good time. I want you to take 10%, sell it, go to the temple once a year, and I want you to have a good time. And then, once you've had a good time, go to the next slide. What I want you to do, I want you to share that good time with other people. I want you to share it with people who don't have their own fields. And I want you to share it with people who particularly are struggling, the fatherless, the widows, the foreigners, those who are currently sort of outside of the societal norms. I want you to share it with them. Do you see what this is all about, this command, this tithing command? This is about generosity. This is about deep, deep love. Deep, deep love. Woe to you Pharisees, Jesus is saying, because you tithe your mint and your rue, and all other kinds of small herbs. Now, um, I uh, <clears throat> went looking for some mint in my garden, and I got something that looks like mint. Anybody see, can you see this? Looks a little bit like mint, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I couldn't actually find any mint. Now, I don't know what rue looks like. Anybody know what rue looks like? I might be, listen, church, I might be growing a bumper crop of rue in my garden, but I've got no idea. So I bought something that I thought looked a little bit like mint. Okay, this is what I thought mint looks like. And uh, what Jesus is saying is, you you know, Pharisees, you've taken a law, a good law, a good command about abundance, about goodness, about life, about generosity, and you tithe your 10% of your mint and your rue and uh, I don't know if I can sort of do that now. What's 10% of this sort of mint? Probably about, I don't know, this much. Can, can you kind of like, there's my 10%, there's my 90%. That's for me, that's for you, God. Can you kind of see the, the kind of ridiculousness of this? And I, I sort of, it's a woe, but I imagine at the time, you know, those who were standing by looking on, there would have been a, a sort of a chuckle at this point, right? You tithe 10%. Like, like God is sort of saying, you know, take your harvest. And by that, he's presumably God is meaning like your corn, your, your sheep, your whatever, your harvest. These guys, I mean, how's your mint harvest coming on, right? How's your dill harvest? Your cumin. <laughs> How are you getting on with that? 
How's that harvest? And, and Jesus is kind of saying, you're missing the big thing. You're kind of so busy, like, is this 10%? Is this 90%? I mean, who's going out into their garden? Is that what God meant? Going out in your garden, sort of like fishing around in the, in the weeds that like I was doing last night in the rain, looking for some mint so that I could tithe it? Is that really what God is about? This kind of small details, this small thing? Jesus is saying it's about something. So you've, you've taken the law and you're looking at the small thing and you missed the big thing. You've missed the big thing. If there's one word I could use to describe what this passage in Deuteronomy is about, what Jesus is getting on that here, the thing that he's trying to hit, is this one word, and the word is abundance. Abundance. Can I get that definition up, Herb? Abundance, an extremely plentiful or oversufficient quantity or supply, overflowing fullness, affluence or wealth. I believe that's the word that God has for us this morning, certainly the word that's been challenging me this week as we're praying as staff. Abundance. What is that passage in Deuteronomy all about? It's about the abundant love of God. And it's about the call for his people to be an abundant sort of people. The sort of people who live in a reality of abundance. The sort of people who know what it is to believe that God is love and God is for them that there's no need to be afraid, there's no need to be worried that things aren't going to be there tomorrow because God is a God of abundance. God in Deuteronomy is trying to teach his people that he is a God of abundance and he wants them to live in that reality. And Jesus is saying the problem you've got, the problem you Pharisees, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you religious leaders. You're so busy worrying about whether this is right and this is wrong. You're so worried about the kind of, like, have I got enough? Have I done enough? That you're missing the big picture. And the big picture is one of abundance. You're not an abundant people because, and the very thing which should have led you to live in abundance, that law, that command which God gave, the very thing you're using to do the exact opposite. And it's hurting you and it's hurting others. Last week, Johnny talked about Peter. And he said that, something really interesting, for Peter, everything had been taken away from him. He'd been well and truly humbled. And Jesus took him back to his worst stuff, to his moment of deep, deep weakness. And Johnny said this, and I wrote it down because it really struck me. He said, you know, there's only one way into the kingdom. There's only one way into this reality we're talking about here. And that's in need. There's only one way in and it's on our knees. And I love that because here's the thing with abundant love. You can only receive it. That's the only thing you can do with abundant love. It's actually incredibly humbling to be loved like that. And it's why I think lots of us struggle with it. There's no other way to get it. If you are loved, you can't get more of it. You can't squeeze out more. You can't get more by paying for it or working harder than it. You can't sort of take it and then just own it forever. You have to keep on receiving it. Ongoing reception. Those of you who are married or in long-term friendships will know exactly what this is about. And so the basis of all of this, this abundant love, what God is trying to teach his people is, are you receiving this abundant love? That's it. That's it. Are you receiving this abundant love? And so the problem is that that's so hard. There's something about us, something in our hearts that means that we find it very hard to know that we are loved like that. There's something in us that means it's very hard for us. And so like the Pharisees, we're happier in this sort of economic system of like a little bit and a little bit more. And what have I done? Can I do enough? And so religion plays into the very heart of this. 
the very thing that should have led us to see the abundance, we actually take it and to reassert that sense we, that we're earning something, that we're doing enough. And Jesus' frustration is you are the ones. You are the ones who are God's people. You are the ones who talk about the abundant love of God. You are the ones who meditate on it. You are the ones who have the scriptures about, that talk about that abundant love of God. And yet you're the very ones he's saying to these Pharisees who are missing it and therefore you're not allowing other people to see it either. And so it's as if there's these two economies. There's abundance and then there's scarcity and there's limit. There's abundance and there's scarcity and limit. There's everything is gift. And then there's what can I get? And Jesus is saying, you are stuck, Pharisees, in the old economy. You're stuck in that old way of thinking, that economy of buying and selling and how much can I shave off the top? What can I get away with? God is abundant love. And we add our ifs and buts and boundaries, our 10% and our limits and our duty. God is abundant love. And often our first question is, who's in, who's out? God is abundant love. God is abundant love and we think to ourselves, we look around and I think, I'm probably in the top 50% of holy people in this place. God is abundant love and I think to myself, I wonder when God is gonna reward me for that thing I did a while ago for him. God is abundant love and I say to myself, how much is enough? God is abundant love and I think as long as I stay quiet, I don't tell anyone, it will all be okay. God is abundant love and we ask, how much can I get? away with what's enough to keep him happy and God is saying I'm abundant love you Pharisees you've missed it and so the problem isn't religion or irreligion and we often do that with the Pharisees don't we they're religious we're not like them the problem isn't religion or irreligion the problem is the human heart the problem isn't that we've not been good or we've not been bad it's have we grasped the extent to which we are loved this week I had a friend who did that with me and uh, I was struggling with an issue, a particular thing. And um, this friend is always at the end of the phone. I, I gave this person a ring and I, I called them up and I just said, you know, just talked through the issue. They talked through some of their stuff. I talked through some of my stuff. And um, I was really, really struggling with this issue, to be honest. And this person just said down the phone, so it went quiet for a second. And then just went, you know, the thing is, Will, he said, what if God is just kinder than you think he is? What if God is just kinder than you think he is? And honestly, it was like a punch to the face. And it's been interesting because I've been preparing this sermon and I just missed it. I just missed it, what Jesus is saying to this man. He was doing exactly what that friend had to do to me this week. What if God is just kinder than we think he is? You know, there's a little bit um, before this passage in Luke 11. Jesus is talking to the crowd and he talks about eyes. He talks about eyes and he says, you know, what goes into your body is because of what you look at. He says this, your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. Now, I've always taken that to mean, you know, when your eyes are healthy, you're looking at good stuff, wholesome stuff, healthy stuff, holy stuff, then everything will be okay. And actually, the translation there isn't healthy or unhealthy, really. The translation is generous or stingy. Do we look at the world with generous eyes? Or do we look at the world with stingy eyes? Which reality do we live in? 
And that's what Jesus has just said. And that's why when he goes into the Pharisee's house and the Pharisee looks at Jesus, who's not washed his hands, and he says, hang on, you've transgressed my boundaries. You've walked across a line. Jesus says, whoa, 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 you're missing the whole thing. And it's frustrating for me because you should be the ones who are trying to teach the world what generosity and abundance look like. You do not have generous eyes. You have stingy eyes. I think we need to be a church of people who have generous eyes, who see the world with generosity, who see it for themselves and who see it for other people, who live within that reality of abundant love. A couple of thoughts and then I'm done. Like I say, I think we need to be a church like that. Our job is to be the people of God in this place. And that means to show the world, to show the city what abundant love looks like. We don't have all the love. Jesus isn't just working in this place, he's at work in the world. But we're the people who recognize him and recognize his love. And we're to be the people who show the world abundant love. Now things are going to change a little bit. I think there's going to be a shift for us going forward from this point on. We're going to continue exactly as we are. But I just feel like there's something changing And it might have to do with September, I don't know. It might just be there's a new shift in September. But really the thing that we're praying for is revival. We're praying that God, the God of abundance, would pour out that abundance onto our city, into people's lives in our city, would change lives, would bring healing, would end brokenness. And that's what we're praying for, isn't it? And I really believe this week, I felt quite convicted about this, that we need to be a church ready for that abundance And I think that means a few things for us. I think there's an individual challenge, but there's also a challenge for us as a church here. Are we ready to be the sort of people who see with generous eyes? Are we ready to be the sort of people who live in abundance, who aren't so worried about the 10% and the 90% and who's in and who's out, but are ready to receive? And here's the thing, the people we want to receive that abundant revival, they're not the people who are religious people. They're not the people who know how this goes down. They're not the people who will know what to do when they come into church. They're the people we would love to have. They're the people we want to hear the message. They're the first people we want to hear the message. So are we ready as a church to welcome those people who don't know what the lines are, who don't know what the boundaries are, who are transgressing things that we might disagree with? Are we ready to have generosity towards them? Are we ready? Are we ready to welcome in? What is ours to do? What is yours to do? And I know that so many of you do this already. I could list here the things that happen in the week that show abundant love and show abundant mercy. But are we ready for it ourselves? How can we welcome? How can we stand alongside people who need us? How can we welcome the lonely, the lost? How can we be that kind of church that lives in abundant love? What would it look like to be a church? that truly dwell in abundant love? What would it look like for people to come in and experience abundant love that they've never experienced before? Because the world certainly isn't giving it to them. The world certainly isn't giving abundant love. It's giving this exchange, this how much is enough? Is my value based on my work, my effort, my output? And we're showing them abundant love of God. Are we ready for that? And there was something really particular about that in the final verse, in verse 53 we read. Uh, in 52, sorry. Woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. And, and earlier as well, Jesus talks about, you know, you weigh people down. He says in verse uh, 46, you weigh people down with burdens they can hardly carry. I, I really believe that what the church is looking for, uh, what the world is looking for, is a people who are at one time, at the same time, deeply, deeply passionate and convicted and yet deeply, deeply generous. That's what I believe the world is looking for. People who know what they believe and who believe in truth 
who believe there is a way, and his name is Jesus, but who are ready to be open arms, welcoming and generous. And I don't think the world often sees that. I think it sees truth as exclusive. And often we can be very, very good at being generous without that as well. We need both things together. Are we ready to be deeply convicted and passionate and deeply, deeply welcoming? Hear me right, church. This isn't to you a woe. This isn't a woe. I don't look out and I don't see religiosity amongst you. I don't see you as a people with stingy eyes. Far from it. I just think it's a call to us, right? How does Jesus speak to this Pharisee? It's a call to us. There might one day be a day where things have turned and religiosity has spread amongst us and a word needs to be said to you. And I will stand up here with my hand on my heart and with all the courage in the world and I will say, Johnny Hughes has something to say to you, church. (laughs) (laughs) And I will sit down. (laughs) But that day is not today. (laughs) Hear the call. Hear the call. We are called to dwell in the abundant love of God, to see the world with generous eyes. I'm just going to invite the band up. Why don't we stand together?